Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. That can be found on, your, on the Bible, in the Bible, in the pew in front of you, if you want to turn to that on page 1045. Again, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, page 1045 on the pew Bible in front of you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished, Again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and both to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, uh, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Hope that you've had a wonderful weekend, perhaps extra time with family, extra time to think about the blessings that God has given us and the gratitude that uh, we should have all the time. If you were here Wednesday night, it was a superb, delightful service of gratitude and praise to God. We appreciate so much Jamie Gillespie and Brandon Adcock uh, giving us two lessons during that time and other deacons led in song and other ways. Uh, it was truly a blessing to be here. Uh, we want to ask you to be praying for Tim Brumsfield, who is the partner with Don Humphrey in the South Sudan work. They have both just returned from a trip there that the trip was rather successful. Uh, but since he is back, he is now in the hospital with malaria and uh, pretty serious. So please be praying for Tim Brumsfield uh, during this time and be praying for his recovery. As we think about bless the Lord, O my soul, which will be the theme again tonight of our service, I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet filled out your 10,000 reasons, and we're only asking you to fill out 10, if you're sitting on the end of the pew right now, if you will, there's a post-it note on the end. Uh, if you haven't yet completed one, please take a post-it note, pass it down, and then when you get those passed out, put them back on the outer edges for the next service. And uh, as you can see, as you entered in, uh, you got a few brothers and sisters that have gotten theirs in, and, and a lot of us need to get those in by this afternoon. Surely there would be at least 500 of us out of the 1,000. Surely we could come up with 5,000 reasons if we can't come up with 10,000 reasons. Uh, but, but we need most every adult and every child about 10 years and older to do this. And we'll have 10,000 reasons on our wall uh, outside that we want to praise the Lord. And so if you'll bring those back in this afternoon, uh, we will have a time of praise this evening that should be a tremendous time together. I hope that uh, those of you that have done that exercise, it surely was a blessing. And I hope all of you will take the time to do that. It truly is a good thing to study through scripture. And if you're saying, well, I don't know exactly what to study. Maybe you weren't here last week. Uh, study Psalm 103 would be one example. And then you could easily come up with 10 reasons. You could probably come up with 15 or 20 or 30 out of that one Psalm that you would bless or praise the Lord. We're concluding this morning our great expectation theme of humility. God truly expects us to be humble. 
And that humility produces a, a lot of other characteristics in our life. It really is one of the baseline characteristics that a foundation of Christianity is built upon. And one of the things that comes out of humility is contentment. Contentment is not easy when we live life as uh, influenced by our fleshly nature, which all of us are prone to do that. The temptation is there to do that. And so we, we have this opportunity to live a fleshly life or a spiritual life. And the fleshly life is, is based on a, a desire of greed. It may not for everyone be money, but there will be something that pushes us that we want more and more. The idea in, in this is enough is never enough. This morning, where, where do you fall in that saying? Where do you fall in that? Is enough enough for you or do you always have to have more? You're always in need of more. Well, until we learn contentment through Christ, enough will never be enough. When we think about what is contentment, sometimes we see pictures like this and tries to show us this is contentment. Or maybe a picture like this or maybe even one like this. A dictionary definition of contentment is a state of happiness and satisfaction. That word satisfaction is very much a strong part of the way contentment is used in scripture. Enough can be enough, but where do we find that source of enough? Is money the source of enough? Is popularity the source of enough? Is good health the source of enough? If that's where we find our enough, if that's where we find our satisfaction, what are you going to do when you don't have as much money as you have now? You're not going to be satisfied anymore. What are you going to do when you don't have as many friends as you have now? You won't be satisfied anymore. What are you going to do when you don't have the health that you have now? You won't be satisfied anymore. Tolstoy wrote a short story in literature and he entitled it, How Much Land does a man need? And he told about a young man who wanted land and he approached a rich man who had huge amounts of land and he decided that for a certain price he could pay the rich man for land. And the amount of land that he was purchasing was based upon whatever he walked across. If he saw the, the pasture or the valley and he walked across it, he could claim it for one day. He could walk for one day wherever he wanted to walk and he could claim the land as long as he was back to the house by sunset. And so the man began just as the sun was rising that morning he walked across the first beautiful field and he says, it's mine. But then at the end of that beautiful field was another beautiful field. And he said, well, I've got to walk across that one too. I've got to have that one. And he got across that and he saw a beautiful lake. And he said, well, I've, I've got to have that lake too. And he walked around the lake and he said, now it's mine. But at the other side of the lake was this beautiful hill. And he climbed this steep hill because he wanted that at the other side of his lake. But when he climbed the steep hill, he looked off to the side and there's a beautiful valley. And he said, I've got to have that too. And he walked across it. And then he noticed it was late in the day. He realized it was going to be near impossible for him to make it back to the house before the sun set. So he began to run and he began to push his body more than a body could stand. And as the sun set and he wasn't back to the house, he physically collapsed and died. 
His servants came and they picked him up, retrieving his body and taking him back and giving him an honorable burial. And then Tolstoy said, how much land does a man need? Six foot. You see, in that story, we see the problem that we all have in some way in our life with greed, with covetousness versus contentment. Will money, will money give you contentment? You can't buy it. So then we don't need money. What we need is poverty. No, poverty won't provide it either. Okay, can good health give you contentment? Good health won't sustain it. Okay, so you're saying we all need to be sick. No, sickness, it will not allow contentment to remain simply because we're sick. Or what about among friends? If we're just around a lot of friends and we're very popular and we get a lot of followers and a lot of likes, we're bound to no contentment. No, it won't ensure it. So then we need to all sit alone. No, alone time doesn't create it either. This morning, I want to ask you, do you know the source of contentment? In the text that's just been capably read, in Philippians, the fourth chapter, verse 11, if you're open there, Philippians 4 and 11, notice the last part of that verse. The last part of the verse says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And then he goes on and, and he talks about whether he had very little or that he had abundance. It didn't matter. He said, I've learned to be content. It wasn't tied with a certain health condition. It wasn't tied with a certain fitness. It wasn't tied with a certain number of friends. It wasn't tied to a, a certain level of luxury or comfort. He learned to be content. And so we ask the question, how? Because in Christianity, one of the great mysteries of Christianity is to be able to be content no matter what our circumstance. There's no one in the world that can truly know this. There's no one in the world that truly experiences this because this can be found only through Christ. If you have your Bible open, I'd like for you to notice that this paragraph begins there in Philippians 4 and verse 10. Keep in mind, it's mankind that put the paragraph breaks in and, and even put the verse and chapter breaks. I want you to notice if you back up to Philippians 4, 8 and 9, the two verses prior to that, do you notice how it begins, finally, brethren? Now, if you go back and look at the third chapter in verse 1, that's also the way he began that chapter. In other words, Paul probably thought as he was writing, getting to the third chapter, I'm ready to start closing this little short letter. And then he decided, no, there's a few more things that I want to say. So he really opened it right back up. And now he comes around to the end of the letter and he says it again. And he says, finally, brethren. And so as he's closing this letter, which is going to quickly become based upon the topic of contentment, he first says this in eight and nine that I believe is a part of the foundation 
of his language and teaching. Notice he said to learn. You can learn contentment. We must learn contentment. And so the basis of learning contentment has to be up on this foundation. And look what it is in 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble. Why is he being redundant here with whatever things? Is he bringing an emphasis to this? Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You notice how he's listing these intentionally, individually. He doesn't just say, whatever things are true, comma, honest, comma, just, comma, pure, comma, so on. Instead, there is an emphasis here that says, I want you to be thinking about whatever things are true. Now, have you got that thought out? Now I want you to go back and I want you to think about whatever things are honest. Have you got that thought out? Now, let's go back and make this a little bit deeper in its meaning. Well, what are we going to think about them as in to compare them to? True to whom? True to me and my fleshly thinking? true to culture that surrounds me, true to whatever the tradition and religion is at the time, or true to God. Notice at the end of verse 9, he says, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy. In other words, what he's saying here, as you look at things that are true, honest, just, pure, he says, I want you to note, is there anything Virtuous, moral excellence. Is there anything of praiseworthy to laud, to esteem, to hold up? Is there anything that we can say, well now really, if you're gonna pull out the moral excellence, sure, there, there's a moral excellence to truth that comes from God. What about honesty? Well, you know, we, we have a way we do business at work and we're not always completely truthful, but what about if you were going to have a moral excellence? What if you were going to be praiseworthy in God's sight? Oh, now we have a different standard. Now here's what's really awesome about this passage. He takes all of this and you see the end there where he says meditate on these things but some of your translations are going to say think on these things and then we say well why, why do some of the translations give a, a different word there? Well because this particular word is really interesting. If you look this word up in the lexicon you know what the first definition is going to be? Take inventory. Last night... I had to rush out of the building at 8.50 because as I was preparing the rest of this lesson, it clicked in my mind, Subway closes at nine. And so I'm rushing up to Subway before it closes for my Sunday night ritual. And, and as I'm standing in line there, I'm visiting with the guy that we've come to get to know each other pretty well. And, and uh, I said, hey, you're, you're about to close up, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, but I gotta stay here tonight. I said, why? And he said, I got to do inventory. I said, it's interesting you say that. I'm writing a sermon tonight about inventory. 
And, and I stood there and I told him about this passage in Philippians 4 and, and 8 and 9. I said, I said, you know, just like you're going to go back and you're going to count everything here in this store tonight, the Lord requires us to look at things in our life and inventory our own life. The word meditate or think here literally means to take inventory, to reason, to account, to conclude. Now, let's think about what we, we have just seen in this and go back. And I know a little bit of it will be redundant, but think with me for just a moment. So instead of just looking through my life and saying, let me take inventory based on what I think is true. He says, I want you to take inventory of all of your life and I want you to do it on what is true based on moral excellence and what is praiseworthy to God. So now we've got our standard and we've got our topic. And he says, I want you to do this in all things in your life. So we think about possessions. Do I use my possessions in a way that is of truth? We think about relationships. Am I sharing in relationships in a way that God would say, that's true, that's good. We think about circumstances. Do I handle the best of days in a way that is true? Do I handle the worst of days in a way that is true? And then we, we take an inventory of that to see where is it that I need to make changes so that I can say, you know, I, I've taken an inventory and, and I made some major changes in some areas of my life. I've had to tweak other areas of my life. And then the Lord says, now, you got that? Say, so, Lord, it was, it was really daunting. It, it's really kind of sobering and humbling to look in your life that carefully. And he says, now that you've done that, I want you to go back and I want you to start again. And now I want you to look at your life with honesty. I want you to look at all things with honesty. And so we go back through our life and we say, all right, the standard is that which is praiseworthy to God. The standard is a, a moral excellence. And he says, now, what about in your possessions? Do you deal honestly with all that you own? Now, what about in relationships? You deal honesty, honestly in all your relationships? What, what, about, what about in circumstances? At work, at home, when you're out in the community, are you honest? Just all the way back through your life again. How do you treat other people? Are you just toward other people? Pure. Go back and look in your possessions. <coughs> in your possessions, are you pure? In your relationships, are you pure? And all the circumstances in your life, are you pure? Things that are lovely. That's the idea of almost to befriend. It's the idea of to be friendly toward. In everything, are you lovely? And of everything, are you of a good report? Well, who would make this report? Well, this report would be based upon a, a virtuous uh, excellence of praiseworthiness. You see the foundation of this contentment? This foundation of contentment is, is not taking, are you listening? It's not taking an inventory of possessions. He's just used the word to say, take inventory. And he says, you don't find the abundant life in counting possessions. You find the abundant life by answering the question, who are you? Who are you with what you own? 
Who are you in the relationships God has given you? Who are you in the day-to-day living and the circumstances that you find yourself? And it's coming out of that that he then teaches probably some of the best verses we have in the Bible that challenges us about the topic of contentment. With this in mind, what we just talked about, I'd like for you to look back with me at Luke, the 12th chapter. (coughs) Excuse me. We can make, of course, an entire study out of the passage we're going to. And, and, and so I say that to say that maybe you might want to jot this down. And if you aren't familiar with this or if it's been a while since you've studied this, Luke 12 is a great passage to really break down on this idea of contentment. But I want us to especially notice the teaching that Jesus gives that causes him then to say, let me now give you a parable to help you to understand what I'm saying here. Look what he says in Luke 12 and 15. He said to them, take heed and beware. See, kind of like the positive and negative there. Hey, pay special attention to this. Oh, and be careful. This is gonna try to be destroyed in your life. Don't let the negative come in. Keep the positive in. Take heed and beware of covetousness. That's the opposite of contentment. Beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. In other words, the Lord says here, take inventory. And when you get done taking inventory of your life, keep in mind your life's value is not going to be found in, look how much I have. Possession-wise. It's not even going to be found in, look how fit and healthy I am. You know, you hear people say, oh, your health is everything. Really? So you're saying that once the doctor tells you that you're no longer as healthy as you used to be, and because of this particular sickness, you won't ever have the health you used to be, that now your life doesn't matter? Is that what you're saying? Is really health everything? If you want a secular view, you ever seen someone enter, maybe, maybe they, they're going on a nice vacation and maybe they enter a surrounding that, that has greater possessions than what they're normally accustomed to and, and they'll walk into that resort or, or whatever the setting is and they'll, they'll say these words, <clears throat> now this is living. You don't really mean that though, right? Hopefully that's nothing more than an expression of speech that says, hey, this is good. Because what would be sad if you walked into that and you meant it, this is living. What you're saying is, I don't really have a life that matters unless I have some really expensive things around me. Is that how shallow your life is? Does your life really not matter unless your your vehicle is, is two years old or newer? Does your life really not matter if you don't have a certain square footage at your house? Does your life really not matter unless there's a certain label on your clothing? Don't you know you're worth so much more than that? Don't you know that your life has so much more meaning? I overheard two girls speaking recently and and they were probably in their mid-twenties and and it was so sad. One of them said to the other one, they were both looking at their phone and one said to the other said, Oh, I used to never care about how many followers I had. And then she named some of the girls. She said, until I became friends with so-and-so. 
and she has a few friends that are famous. And, and she said, now it really bugs me and I do everything I can do to get more followers. As I'm overhearing this, I just, I think to myself, how sad is that? That, let's go to this next slide. I want you to fill in the blank. Fill in, it's not just a blank, it's, it's complete the sentence, okay? However much, how many words you need to complete the sentence. This is for you. The best life I could pursue consists of. Best life I could pursue consists of things, a lot of things, a lot of luxury, a summer house and a winter house, followers, likes, popularity, fame, fitness, beauty, talent, notoriety. What do you finish that sentence? And not just because you're sitting in a worship service. But right now, your life, what is the rest of that sentence? The best life I could pursue consists of what? How could Paul say, I've learned, learned, he uses that word in verse 11 and in verse 12, I've learned to be content. How could he say that? His contentment came through Christ. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to Philippians there again. And what I want us to do in just a moment, and this is kind of a review of some things that we've covered this month, and, uh, and then part of it is, is not a review, but we've got to hit it as quickly as if it were a review. And so I hope this isn't frustrating to you, and I hope I don't lose you in this part. But I just want to remind you, we're studying the end of Philippians, and what he does is he makes it very clear throughout Philippians 1, Philippians 2, Philippians 3, and now into Philippians 4, that all of his life was about a pursuit of Christ. That's why toward the end, he can talk about this contentment without elaborating a whole bunch because I believe if we were asking Paul right now and we said, Paul, you wrote some really great things at the end of Philippians about contentment, but, but why didn't you elaborate more? I believe Paul would say, I told you that was the conclusion of the book. The whole book is a book about contentment. Read chapter one, it's about contentment. Read chapter two, it's about contentment. Read chapter three, it's about contentment. And he says, this is the way I just brought it to a conclusion. And so let's, let's just pull something out of each. Look at Philippians, the first chapter. And notice his priority was to magnify Christ. In Philippians one and verse 20, he closes verse 20 by saying, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, what is your desire in your life? What does your life consist of? Now by this point, it hadn't always been true in his life, but by this point he could say, my life consists of making Christ larger. Not that he's actually changing Christ, but that he's making more people come to know Christ. And he says, so when I live a day, and let's just go back through those things, like when we're looking a while ago at Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Think about this. Paul could say, 
the way I use my possessions, I try to use them in a way that would magnify Christ. The way I use relationships, whether I'm right now in a relationship with a prison guard, he probably was at this point in his life, he's in jail, prison as he's writing this, or if, if I have a good friend that's a brother in Christ, I just try to live my life to magnify Christ. What about the circumstances? Yeah, if, if I'm in dire need or if I'm in abundance, I try to always use it to magnify Christ. Well, Paul, what about even if it comes to taking your life? He says, I want to magnify Christ that way too. Even by the way I die, I want to magnify Christ. And that really brings us to the second chapter. In Philippians, the second chapter, we see his priority there was to exemplify Christ. In the first four verses, he talks about not doing things through selfish ambition and having a, a genuine interest in other people's interest. And finally, he then says in verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then for the next several verses, he gave Jesus as an example. Remember a few weeks ago, we studied this next paragraph about Jesus and pointed out the fact that it was in Jesus' humility that he gave up his rights in order to serve. He had equality with God, but he gave that equality up in order to come to this earth to serve. And also in his humility, he was obedient to, how, to what extent? He was obedient even unto death. What about if we exemplify Christ? What does that mean? That means we're going to be servants like Christ. We're going to give up rights in order to serve. It means we're going to be obedient. Well, well what if we're obedient and it hurts us to be obedient? He says, that's my example that I'm following is Jesus Christ. And Jesus was obedient, whether it was the best of days or whether it was a very difficult situation, he remained obedient. Well, that brings us to the third chapter where his language becomes language of pursuit. And this is where he says his priority is to gain Christ. And in Philippians 3 and 8 is one example. Remember, this is where he lists several things that if he was taking inventory of his life before Christ, he would have bragged about these things. But now that he takes inventory of his life with Christ, he says, I count these things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as, see that word count there, it's the idea of taking inventory, as rubbish that I may what? Gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. And he'll go on to write about what he really wants to know is the power of the Lord's resurrection and to share in his suffering. So with these three things in mind, I want us now to go over to the text and we're going to start bringing this to a close. Look in Philippians 4 and 11 there. But notice here, so we've looked in chapter 1, the priority to magnify Christ, chapter 2 to exemplify Christ, chapter 3 to gain Christ, and what does this produce? Chapter 4 verse 1 he begins that language as we looked at last week or the week before, the, that language where he's talking about standing fast in Christ. It produces a life where we're going to stand in Christ. What does this do? Well, it causes us to be able to say, see in 11 and 12, we have really two sharp contrasts. One contrast is to be in need, verse 11. Verse 12, he calls it to be abased. That, that means to be humiliated. Think about when you need something so desperately, you'd be abased. You remember Jesus, when, when he talked about the cross uh, in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer said that he despised the physical pain. He didn't say that, did he? I'm sure Jesus did despise the physical pain, but it's interesting, nothing's ever said by Jesus about the physical pain. 
Remember what the Hebrew writer said, Jesus despised about the crucifixion? Hebrews 12, he despised the shame, the humiliation, the being abased. Paul said, I know what it is to be humiliated because maybe you don't have the clothing. Maybe it's cold weather outside and other prisoners have a coat and you're sitting there freezing almost to death and it's humiliating to not have what you need. Maybe he sees other prisoners in that day and time, family would bring prisoners food. Maybe he's sitting there humiliated because he sees other prisoners being brought food and his own brothers and sisters in Christ have forgotten him and he's sitting in prison and he's watching them eat. They're watching him not eat and he says, I'm abased. But I've learned how to be content when I don't have enough and it's humiliating to not have enough. But then notice the other side of this not only were there those times of hunger and need, but he says, I also had times in my life where things abounded. In other words, I had more than enough. The banks were overflowing. I had all the food I needed and more. I had all the clothing I needed and more. I had all the support I needed and more. He says, I've learned in whatever state, whatever circumstance, if I'm being abased or if I'm abounding, I've learned in both of those to be content. Why? Because the contentment was not found in the things. It was found in his God. And so that's what verse 13 means. That's the context for verse 13 when he says, I can do, this is really possible, all things. It doesn't matter if it's the best of days or the worst of days. Through Christ, that's the only hope. He is the moral standard, but also he's the power. Who strengthens me? That's how we find contentment. That's how we can finally reach a point through our spiritual maturation that one day we can look at the money we have and we can honestly say, enough's enough. If this is what God wants to give me, enough's enough. If this is the house God wants me to live in, enough's enough. If this is the health that God wants me to have, enough is enough. If this is the friends that God wants me to have, enough is enough. How can you say that? Because my primary objective in life is I live every day to magnify him. I live every day to exemplify him. I live every day to gain him. And if I have gained Christ, enough is enough. I trust him. I want to close with, I think, one of the most beautiful passages, single verses on this topic, and it's out of Psalms, and I hope you'll treasure this with me. If you're not familiar with this verse, I hope you'll jot it down and go back and look at it. I hope every one of us can say this. There's a reason why I made the background plain on this one. Think about how simple this is. As for me, can you say this? As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. When on this earth we can say, I've lived today looking like Jesus. I'm content. Enough's enough. And when we wake up eternally and the glory of Christ is shared with us and we become made like Him, that's going to be the ultimate contentment today. 
You heard that advertisement? It's been out this past two weeks. You just want to throw something at the radio or thanksgiving. That's what one particular marketing campaign is right now. For Thanksgiving week, it was thanksgiving. We're about to enter a season where we won't go many minutes of a day without someone telling us how much more we need. And our fleshly nature buys into it really quickly. And I want to remind you, your life does not consist in the abundance of things. But true contentment is found in gaining Christ and living every day in His favor. Please don't get wrapped up in all the marketing because it will cause you to not appreciate the greatest gifts that are offered to every one of us. How much land does a man need? Six foot? He doesn't even need that. This earth is not our home. We're just a passing through. Can we help you this morning in any way find a life of contentment? It's not because we're special on our own sake and we have arrived into something. It's because as God's children, we've learned something. And if we can help you in any way, if you're ready to be immersed in Christ, you're ready to be restored, if we can pray with you, if we can encourage you in any way, come as